0: Well, if you went here last week, we spent a few, um, a few minutes just looking at the idea of Christmas. We're on our journey, aren't we? It happens every year. We're on that kind of uh, wind-up towards that Christmas time. I'm guessing that some of you are counting down the days for work or for school, college. Um, I can't see anybody yet who's back from uni yet, but there will be those at uni who are thinking it's not far to go. Some of you who are at uni... Uh, and living at home here are thinking, yeah, I've got these assignments to do, but then I'm done, I'm finished. There is that kind of point in the next few weeks where we say we're building up to that moment. There is a great deal of anticipation. Uh, In the middle of all of that, it's good for us to remind ourselves that at the center of this season is the very core of the Christian message. Right at the center of Christmas is... Jesus Christ. If uh, We forget that, don't we? We can easily talk about Jesus Christ and Christmas and forget that Christmas is about, not surprisingly, Christ. That is what Christmas is about. We looked last week at what it meant in terms of Christmas revisited, abide with us. The idea that Christmas talks about God present with us. God coming into the world. But at the same time, I think Christmas gives us an opportunity to get, well it does in many ways, gives us an opportunity to go even bigger than that. Christmas gives us an opportunity not only to know God in this world, but for us to gain a little insight into what God is like. Uh, There was a man called Aidan Tozer and he said this, what comes into our minds, one of my favorite quotes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What is it that is important about you? What do you consider important about you? Maybe I could put it another way, what other people said is important and valuable about you. Is it your uh, quick wit? Is it your abilities technically? Is it because you're an incredibly attractive person? Is it because you're the life and the soul of the party? Whatever it is, uh, Aidan Tozer recognized that there is something far more significant than all of those. What makes us significant is the first thoughts that come into our mind. What our attitude, what our thoughts, what our motivations are when we think about God. Why is that? Because God is eternal, all of those other things are passing. If God is the eternal being, how we consider Him, what we think about Him is the most important defining aspect of you and me. Our our problem during this Christmas time is it's really easy to get detached from the reality and the core of those thoughts about God at this time and get sidetracked into the excitement and into the build-up. At the same time, there is something that I think does reveal something uh, about God, even in that. Here we are. Well, actually, just in the past week, um, somebody who 's um, kind of grown up and uh, they 're not little they 're not kind of waiting for Santa to arrive with presents they grow, they, santa doesn 't come to them anymore, uh, but they are just kind of expressing it is i 'm so excited about christmas uh, there is a sense of sheer excitement about Christmas coming. You know what it's like, you've heard about it, if you've not experienced it, that kind of the night before Christmas when everybody's trying to get to sleep and there is just that kind of bubbling excitement and the kind of, you know, kind of, okay, we'll get to get them to bed. It's around about half past ten, eleven o'clock at night, half, half past ten, eleven o'clock at night, and then at half past one or one o'clock in the morning and um, little feet descend down the stairs as Santa been yet, uh, no, actually, it's still nighttime. You need to go back to bed and sleep for lots more hours and there's tears and yet there's excitement. It's just, in a sense, that sense of anticipation, that sense of uh, coming expectant joy. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That sense that something in the future is so mind-blowingly exciting that in the present I am filled with anticipation and it is spilling out. That's what we are like as people. We have a sense of excitement about future joy. Have you ever considered that God is like that? That God is a God of passion, and engagement, and excitement about future joy. The reading that we've had today, I think, gives us a clear window into the reality of that. Let's have a look at what it says. We're talking talking about a really important part of the Bible, Luke chapter 1. It's the, uh, the declaration to Mary... Of the coming of Jesus. The fact that she is going to give birth to Jesus. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. It was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you, uh, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Here's this moment. In fact, actually, this little uh, section that we're reading here ties together what we were looking at last week with what we're looking at this week. God with us. How does that work out? How does that work? How can God be with us? Actually, the declaration that we have here is that um, there is an explanation. The, the angel, verse 30 says, said to her, Don't be, uh, do not be afraid. You're gonna, you've been found to, uh, to have favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus and he will be great. And then there is a, a declaration, a kind of excited declaration of what Jesus is going to be like. And and Mary steps back at this point and works something out fundamental. How can this happen? I'm a virgin. How can I have a baby? It's It's just an obvious question, isn't it? And here we have the absolute genius of God's salvation plan. How can it possibly be that God can come into the world in human form. Why is that impossible in one sense? It's impossible because of this. Because we know that from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, we know that there is a crisis in humanity. That every human being who is born is marked with uh, the the sin of humanity. There There is a fault line in the human race. And yet God says, I am going to come into this world in human form. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In other words, God does this. He kick-starts again the human race. He starts again the human race. There is a disconnection with that ongoing stream of the mark of sin, and there is a reconnection with God present in the world in human form. He is really human. He comes and He is born of Mary, born of a virgin. In other words, the normal forming of humanity does not continue in the way that it has done right the way down through many, many uh, generations. There is a disconnection, and yet there is a connection. That's what makes God with us, abiding with us, possible in human form. Jesus was not some kind of a Holy Spirit, uh, kind of a, you know, that's probably a bad set of words to use, some kind of uh, spiritual being, some kind of uh, spiritual ghost type form who just happened to look like a man. Nor was he just another human being. (laughs) He was a remarkable restart of the human race by the power of the Holy Spirit coming to this young woman. But look at how that message, there's there's our connection to last week, God abiding with us. Look at how it's declared. Who comes and speaks? To Mary, verse uh, 26 says this, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town called Galilee. I think when we look at this particular excerpt, when we look at last week, when we look at lots of other of our uh, stories around Christmas, we have the idea of this. Point number one, we have the idea of an uncontainable glory. An uncontainable glory. Look at the way it works. Mary, as Martin really helpfully pointed out to us on Tuesday night, is probably a 13 or 14 year old illiterate peasant girl. Do you think about that and you kind of think, um, normally in our kind of cultural idea we have 18 to 20 year olds, Uh, most girls have uh, that you would have been way past it if you were getting married at 18 or 20 in that particular culture you would have been much younger most girls were married by the time they were 14 15 16 something like that we have this illiterate peasant girl who receives what gabriel gabriel comes and speaks to her now that might not mean much to us but we've got a little indication previously in the chapter because Gabriel makes another appearance earlier on. Actually to a relative of Mary, to Zechariah. And when the uh, angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, he says this, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. (laughs) Just think about that. Just think about the comparison there. We've got this young, illiterate, a peasant girl called Mary in a little backwater called Nazareth and she is visited by Gabriel who stands in the presence of God how, how excited therefore how passionate is God about the pending birth of Jesus how much does God care about what is happening at Christmas how thrilled is and bubbling with anticipation and filled with potential joy is God about what is going to happen in about 9 or 10 months. I'll tell you how, how excited he is. I'll send somebody who's right here. My main messenger. The one who stands in my presence, Gabriel. I'll send Gabriel to that little girl who's just a no mark in society and yet I have favored her. I am so excited about what is going to happen that I am going to send the very best messenger. You know, Gabriel is mentioned uh, about four four times in the Bible. Twice here in the book of Luke, twice in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it's very clear that uh, Gabriel is specifically identified as a significant messenger of God to the prophets. Really important. It's like a dramatic herald of the most important message for the prophet. And that's what Mary gets. Mary gets this message from this messenger. Wow! It's like this anticipation. I'm going to send the greatest because of what is going to happen. I love the fact that God is concerned, God is excited, God is thrilled about what is happening at Christmas. Look at what else happens. Gabriel comes and speaks to Zechariah. Look at what we saw last week. Suddenly, while some uh, shepherds are out on a mountainside, on a hillside, looking after sheep in the darkness, suddenly there's a break and the, the glory of heaven just explodes around them. Suddenly there is a mark in the sky that has been going on for quite some time that indicates the birth of a king which responds with wise thinkers and sages from a distant land coming to find him. Look at what God is doing at this moment in time. He is punctuating the story again and again. Normal human experience... Punctuated with little windows into the glory and the greatness of God. It's like saying I'm going to mark me into this story. This is, just not, this is not just a, an ordinary human story, although it is in one sense. It's ordinary people going along about their lives, and yet God just breaks in and just reveals something amazing and dramatic about Himself. There is something about the uncontainable glory of God in the Christmas story. John put it like this, John chapter 1, He said this in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. That's what happens as a result of what Gabriel says to Mary. The word, Jesus, became flesh. The word has all sorts of other important aspects to it which we can't cover at the moment, but He made His dwelling with us. And then John goes on to say this, we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is an uncontainable aspect of God coming into the world. And yet at the same time, if there is uncontainable glory in His birth, I want to suggest that there is also uncontainable glory in his life in his life right the way through the life of Jesus in fact from his birth which we find in the stories of the Christmas story we have 30 years of silence in the life of Jesus same for one say for one moment where we find him in the temple as a younger boy, there is silence. And then breaking in, there is another window into the glory of God as Jesus begins his teaching ministry, around about the age of 30. He comes to John who's been baptized. In fact, John is the result of the declaration of the angel here. Your your relative Elizabeth, we read, is also having a child. That's John the Baptist. Jesus goes to John the Baptist and is baptized by John the Baptist. And then at that moment, there is another breaking in of the glory of God. There is this little window into the massive glory of God and the incredible presence of God where God says, this is my son, I am pleased with him. I am delighted in him. I am filled with joy in him. It's as though God is so passionate about the commencement of the ministry of Jesus that he just fills that scene with his praise of Jesus. This is just look at what's about to happen. He's about to commence his ministry. I'm delighted with him. What kind of God do we want? Or rather, what kind of God do we need? I th- would suggest we need a God who is passionate. About about the fact that all of his plans are coming about. About the fact that he is revealing himself to you and me. About the fact that Jesus is now beginning this ministry. The idea that th- this isn't just some dry steps that God is putting in place in the world. Look at what's happening at every moment. There is an explosion into the world of a little window of the glory of God breaking in. Again and again through the life of the ministry of Jesus, we see those windows. When He he heals somebody, there is something remarkable, there is something breathtaking about the fact that Jesus is able to do things that other people are not able to do. The fact that Jesus calms a storm, little windows into the power and the authority and the glory of God in this world... John who's writing this, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14, we read it earlier, the Word became flesh and we have seen His glory. He was one of those disciples who later on as Jesus is ministering, went up into a mountain and, and then suddenly, all of a sudden, there is another explosion of the glory of God. Where Jesus is suddenly lit up, shining brightly as He, as he talks with two men who have been dead for hundreds of years. Elijah and Moses indicating that they live on in eternity and he knows them and he is present with them and there is, so, there is a little window at that moment in time which reveals the greatness of God in this world and yet kind of hidden enough for us to cope with it. Just a few of them were able to see that. Now listen to this step. In understanding the glory of God in His life. Uncontainable glory in the life of Jesus. Jesus was praying. Right the way through His life, He's been talking about the hour. All the way through, the hour is not yet. The hour has not come. And then all of a sudden in chapter 17, He says, now is the hour. This is the moment. John chapter 17, He says this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now's the moment. What is he talking about when he talks about the hour? The moment where he's nailed to a cross. That is where he says, The hour has come. Now glorify me as I glorify you. When he's nailed to a cross, glorify me as I glorify you. Just in case we get carried away with the idea that glory is all about shining lights and about amazing interventions, Jesus knocks knocks us off course and he says, when I am nailed to a cross, my glory is revealed. What does that mean to you and me? It means that when we see, when we know, and when we understand something more of what God is really like, then glory is revealed. Glory is revealed. You think about glory. <laughs> I'm going to spit it out. Glory, glory, Man United. That really hurt, especially today. There's that that kind of idea, isn't it? That glory can only be filled with something exciting and something amazing. And yet God says, glory is revealed when you know the depth of me. When you understand what I am really like, what kind of passion does God have? What kind of intervention and explosion into human experience is the glory of God when Jesus is nailed to a cross? It's this you know what I am like now because I will come into this world and I will be nailed to die. That is glorious. That is glory. And if you grasp that, and if you know that, and if you see that, you are seeing glory. It's a glorious thing when Jesus is covered in his own blood as he has a crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands, and ultimately a sword in his side. And as he dies, he says, this is glorious. And of course, glory doesn't end there because it continues three days later when He rises again and He comes uh, to be with His Father again in heaven. That's glorious. Glory in life. It's as though, if you imagine... No, we'll, we'll, we'll come to this in a minute. We've got glory in His birth. We've got glory in His life, and they are uncontainable glories. Little moments where the beauty and the majesty and the incredible being and person of God just breaks in. But how does this... Let's call it the Jesus event, shall we? Because it goes from His birth to His death to His resurrection to His return. 33 years. It's not long, is it? 33 years that have altered the course of human history. The Jesus event... How does this fit, this glory revealed, how does this fit into the whole of human history? Let's put it like this. Let's go how the Bible describes the very beginning is glorious. It's glory. Why? Because God is there and God is with His people. There is an uncontainable glory in the whole of history. God present at the beginning of the world. Imagine what it would be like, as the Bible describes, if you and I could leave here this evening and just walk with God. Just walk and talk with God. That would be glory, wouldn't it? Why? Why would that be glory against what we've now understood about Jesus? Because you and I would be getting to know God. We'd be understanding Him, we'd be speaking to Him, He would be revealing Himself to us. That would be glorious. Now right at the end of the Bible, we have exactly the same. We have exactly the same. At the end of the Bible, we see that there is something equally glorious. I saw the holy city, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3 says this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's some kind of picture language of describing what it's going to be like when something new is established. What makes it special? What makes it new is this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this. Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. That connects Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God is dwelling with his people, the Jesus event where God is dwelling with his people, and the final hope of eternity where what? Where God is dwelling with his people. Jesus dwelt with His people for just a short time. But imagine what it would be like when Jesus dwells with His people for all of eternity. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 21. That's what's going to make eternity great. Because Jesus is present. There's going to be a whole load of other stuff that I can't even begin to imagine. What it will be like. We will be fulfilled. We will be satisfied. We will be complete human beings. But the aspect that makes it amazing is that God will be present with His people. It goes on to say, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. Wow. It's as though the Bible is explaining to us that at the beginning and at the end, what makes it amazing is God present. But there's this great big kind of storm cloud bit in the middle it's kind of as though we are engulfed with storm clouds and all of that beauty is hidden from us we know that it's kind of like that it's a separation from god from genesis chapter 3 where we separate ourselves from the glory of god and yet what we see is it's as though right the way through history primarily during the time where Jesus is in this world, it's as though God punches holes in the clouds and something of glory just breaks in. Punching holes in the clouds that separate us from the glory of God you ever been out in the mountains where it's kind of really stormy incredibly dark sky and then every now and then you get this little break in the clouds where there is a shaft of light that suddenly just breaks through and lights up one part of the countryside you look across the valleys and you just see it there that little point of light and it's so intense and it's so contrasting to everything around it that's what Jesus is about It's about something of the glory of God shafting into this world, breaking in, boring a hole through the clouds that are separating us from God. Separating us from seeing the glory of God. From finding the glory of God enjoyable, satisfying, worthwhile. That's what we are made for. We are made to enjoy it. It's hidden from us. And every now and then, God breaks in to allow us to see little bits of it here and there. That's what the Christmas message is about. That's why God is excited to declare what is happening. Nine months time, guess what's happening? Send Gabriel. It's going to happen. Jesus is coming. And then on the day, in the skies, glory just breaks in. And there's this message that says, it's happened. And then again and again through the life of Jesus, it's happening, it's happening. Now, how do we connect that to what we said right at the very beginning? Because Toza said that w- what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If that is what God is like, if that is a source of hope, if that is a source of joy, If that is a source of comfort, if that is the one and only source of reality and eternal worth, the glory of God, then that is something that we need to grab a hold of and keep such a hold on to and love and embrace and just thrive on treasure the bible says we need to treasure that idea to treasure the idea of God what comes into your mind when you think about God there are some of us that think about God as something down there on the laboratory table to be dissected and understood there are some of us that think that the idea of God is just so Worthless that we can, it can enter into our minds and just kind of disappear out. And the Christmas message says it is so breathtaking. It is so above us, so much bigger than us. God coming into the world, it is something that overpowers us and we need to embrace it with all of our being because it is our hope. What comes into your mind when we think about God? Do we treasure it? Do we treasure it? Is it something that I cannot let go of this? I've got to hold on to this. Bearing in mind that ultimately it's Jesus that holds on to us. It it really is because I know that I can't keep a hold of Him. But is is my desire, is my affection, is my orientation towards saying I need to hold on to this more than anything else. I need to grip hold of the glory of God because it is my sustaining hope What happens when we hold on to the wrong thing? It's coming out this week. Anticipation. Peter Jackson's latest film, The Hobbit. It's the story about uh, Bilbo Baggins and the ring. And ultimately, one of the key characters in that story is the character that we all know from the previous films is Gollum. What is it about Gollum? He started off, okay, it's such a well-known story, this is not a spoiler. He started off a hobbit. Okay, there's the first five minutes of the film, Spoiled, but if you didn't know that, well, there you go. He started off a hobbit. He started off full of joy and thankfulness about the world that he lived in. He found that world that was provided for him such a pleasure. And then something broke in which he treasured and wrongly found his affection in that it took a hold of him and it grabbed a hold of him and it consumed him and it crushed him and it became his precious that he can never, never let go of. Never let go of. What does it do to him? He becomes a snarling, physically broken wreck of a being. In the genius of Tolkien's writing, he's trying to help us to see that when we take a hold of treasures that are not the ultimate treasure. When we grab a hold of treasures that we think are going to deliver for us, that never, never can deliver for us, we will hold on to them with passion and with a snarling self-centeredness ultimately that will destroy us and crush us. Now hear me clearly. That does not mean that we should not hold on to some good things. There are many good things that we hold on to. Why do we hold on to the good things? Because we see that those good things have been given to us by a being that is even greater than the good thing, which is God Himself. And when we take a hold of the good thing and we grab a hold of it and we become so passionate about it that we forget God, we find that we're putting all of our hope into that thing. Whether it's family, whether it's relationships, whether it's money, whether it's our careers, whether it's our health, whether it's our self-respect in the community, whatever it might be, it becomes crushing. When we forget that there is something greater, there is a greater glory that is the giver of every good thing. Gollum loses that. and So many of us lose that. And we treasure things that are good things, but they are not ultimate things. They are not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is the glory of God revealed. Jesus revealed. The One who is able to give us good things, yes. The One who says, here, enjoy this life. Enjoy this life in the shires that I've provided for you with all of these good things. And what we do is we twist it. And we contort it. And we say, this is the ultimate and I forget about you. What is Christmas all about? It's a little window to stop us in our tracks and to say, do you realize that God has broken into this world? God's broken in. Little shafts of glory breaking into this world so that we might have the opportunity to turn and to hold on to Him with all of our being. was three wise men. So the story goes. You've heard it so often. According to the Bible, we don't know whether there was three. We know that they were wise we know that they were probably astronomers we know that they came from the east but they came to treasure a little boy who was probably about two by the time they arrived because they realized that something way more significant than anything that had ever happened in the world had taken place maybe this Christmas for us, for every single one of us, it can be another positive turning point. A turning point that where we have perhaps embraced Jesus in the past as all of our hope, all of our potential for the future eternity and the glory of being present with him we've held on to it in the past and we've just started to slip and our affections have been twisted somewhere else let's see the glory of God breaking into this world and let's embrace it again maybe for the first time is the opportunity to say and to see and to love the idea that God present in the world is the most amazing thing that we can ever see as human beings I love the fact that the messenger of God came in to that young girl and says do not be afraid Mary you've found favour with God effectively God says that to every one of us when we turn to him don't be afraid you've found favour with God